need your help, Father. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we'll dismiss our children to Children's Church, all children through the third grade. Welcome to Head On Out. Uh, All children through the third grade can head on out. If you could take your Bibles and join me in uh, Genesis chapter number 17. Genesis chapter 17 is where we will be. Genesis 17. Well, I think I've waited long enough, right? And uh, I didn't just wait so you could turn to Scripture. I was actually watching my watch. That was about 15 seconds of waiting. How many of y'all were feeling just a little bit of antsy for just 15 seconds of like, here we are, and okay, why is Pastor Sam not saying anything? Like, did he forget his message today? We don't do a very good job of waiting, do we? Uh, One study that was done in the UK found that over the course of your lifetime, you will spend five years waiting in lines. Right? Five years waiting lines. By the way, six months of your life will be sucked away from you sitting at traffic lights. And if you're in the city of Mobile, that's more like three and a half years. If you drive on Airport Boulevard at all, it's just traffic light after traffic light. Six months of your life waiting at, uh, of your life waiting at traffic lights. Uh, the average person, this, is, this was fun, loses 24 minutes every day waiting for other people. By the way, over the course of a lifetime, that's about 389 days. That is about a year of someone's life. Just remember that next time you are deliberately leaving five minutes late, I'll be fine, they'll wait for me. Hey, you're robbing someone about a year of their life. Um, I'm I'm tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but it really is one of those things that when we are deliberately late over and over again, it's it's really kind of selfish and we only care about ourselves, and that's kind of the way we roll as fallen human beings. But we don't do a good job with waiting. We didn't do a good job with just like 15 seconds of me standing awkwardly up here. I hate, by the way, since I had Timothy, red lights have become torture. He loves the car moving, and then you stop at a red light, and he just goes ballistic at red lights. So I'm like, please stay yellow. Let me try to zip through, keep the car moving. Waiting is a difficult thing. Well, as we come to Genesis chapter 17, we meet Abraham in the middle of a really long wait. Uh, last week, Ryan preached on Genesis 16 for y'all. At least that's what he said he was preaching on. Is that what you preached on, Ryan, Genesis 16? Um, about Abraham trying to help God out a little bit with this whole thing with Hagar. Now, to, just in Abraham's defense, God never told him, like, it's only going to be through Sarah. Don't try this thing with Hagar. But he's trying to help God out. And from the end of Genesis 16 to Genesis 17, there is about a 13-year wait. Genesis 16, verse 16 says, Abraham was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to him. So he's about 86. Then Genesis 17, verse 1, look at this. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, he's 99, 13 years later, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. So imagine waiting 13 years. Now, we don't know what happened in those 13 years, but it stands to reason that during those 13 years, there's not a word from God. There's not a message from God to sustain him. It's 13 years of waiting, 13 years perhaps of, we'll find out later on, of assuming that Ishmael is the son of promise. 13 years of waiting, wondering how is God going to fulfill his promises. Now, we put in rewind, go back to Genesis 12, and we find out that God has called Abraham. He's given him these promises. You're going to have this land, and you're going to have this, these nations that are going to come from you. Through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. And then here's Abraham and Sarah. They don't have any kids. And first he thinks, well, maybe Lot will be the son of promise, but then Lot leaves the promised land. He goes east. We got the whole thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he's like, maybe it'll be Eleazar. And God's like, no, it won't be Eleazar. And then he's thinking, he and Sarah are thinking, well, maybe it'll be Ishmael. This chapter, God's going to be like, no, it's going to be Isaac. It's going to be the son of promise. I think we can imagine Abraham during those 13 years just wondering, how is God going to fulfill these promises? What's he going to do during this time that I'm waiting How's he going to carry out these incredible, glorious promises that he has made to me and to my offspring? I think like Abraham, we are living in the wait. 
during the 13 years, between the already, we've been justified, and the not yet. We've not been glorified. We're not in heaven yet. I don't know if you've noticed. This is not exactly heaven on earth that we, we are here. We're, we're living in this time where there's disease, where there is sin, where there's chaos, where there's pandemics, where there's lockdowns, where there's turmoil, where we, we just got all these things going on around us, right? And we're wondering, where is the promise of his coming? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus left. Where is he? Where's the promise of his coming? Everything's continuing and on, just as it always has, and People begin to wonder, begin to doubt. During times of waiting, our faith often begins to waver, right? It's during those times of difficulty, people's faith often begins to waver. If you talk to someone who maybe is no longer a Christian, often what they'll talk about is, didn't seem real, right? There's all these promises in the Bible, and it just didn't seem real. Like, if God's true, why, why is my life so ordinary? Or if God is real, if God is good, why all the suffering and this pain in our world, in our lives? Real questions people wrestle with. We waver when we wait. And listen, if God's promises are not true, what are we? What's the point of waiting, right? If God's promises are not true, if there is not eternal life, if there is not heaven, if there is not a resurrection, Paul says Christianity is a lie. We're of all men to be most pitied if it's not true. If there's no promise, if there's no eternal life, if there is no hope, why bother coming to church this morning? Why bother doing what is right? Why bother fighting sin? There is no point. Yet in Genesis 17, God comes along and he's going to confirm the covenant to Abraham. He's going to come back. He's going to reiterate what he, he cuts the covenant in, in Genesis 15. Genesis 17, he's going to reiterate it. He's going to give him a sign to confirm it. And what's God doing here? One of the things he's doing is sustaining Abraham's faith. He's saying everything you, you've believed and hoped for, it is worthwhile. So how does God sustain our faith? Now, understand, we're not Abraham, but I think what God says to Abraham is very applicable to you and me as we live in those 13 years between the already and the not yet. So in this chapter, I want us to see that God sustains our faith and he confirms his covenant. And the way this chapter is put together is we've got five divine speeches. We'll just get that little phrase, and God said, and God said. And those give us the bones of the chapter. It's just kind of mapped out right here for us. Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us these five divine speeches that convey five means that God gives us to sustain our faith. So maybe you're here this morning, and your faith is kind of wavering, it's wobbling. Maybe you've stepped away from faith altogether. This is a chapter that calls us back to the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God. So let's look at this first means God uses to sustain our faith, to confirm his covenant. In the first three verses, we'll call this revelation. God is revealing something to Abraham again. So we read verse 1. It says that God comes and he appears to Abram. By the way, this is a theophany in verse 22. God goes up from him. So there's some kind of a, 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 a visible uh, revelation of God. And then God says this in verse 1. I am the Almighty God. I am El Shaddai. Walk thou before me, be thou perfect, be upright, be genuine, be complete. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him. That's God revealing himself. God's revealing his character, revealing his nature. After these years of waiting, God shows up. It's sort of like you're sitting in the doctor's office and they finally like call your name. The doctor's ready to see you. You're at the DMV holding that little ticket. You're like D38 and you're on like... A2, and you're like, I'm going to be here for three. And then they finally call your number. Here God shows up and speaks to Abraham. And the first word from God is not, Abraham, I need you to do this, 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 and this. But the first word is, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. This is a new name that is being used in the the Abraham cycle here in Genesis. A new name that's being used here. Now, later on in Exodus, God would say, the patriarchs knew me as El Shaddai, but you're going to know me as Yahweh. It's not that the name wasn't used, but God is going to reveal himself as this God. This is a name that is used often in Genesis when God is going to give children, when God is going to give life. He's that kind of God. Now, the etymology of the name is kind of obscure. There's different ideas that are thrown around out there. But the idea is that God is an all-sufficient, all-powerful God who can do the impossible. He's a God who we can rely on, a God who himself sustains our faith with his own character. You see, the, the Bible is a record of a God who shatters puny human expectations. If you want to contrast, contrast Genesis 16, where Abraham, I think, in his mind, as a really little God, I've got to help him out. Like, you know, Hagar, and we'll you know, produce a child this way outside the bounds of marriage. It'll be, we'll help God out. He's not quite able to do this on his own. This chapter, the opening word, the opening salvo is, I am God Almighty, right? Like, I, I'm a big God. I, I'm an awesome God. I'm a glorious God. 
A.W. Tozer was right when he said people's worship will rise no higher than their view of God. Right? If you've got a little God, you'll have little worship. If you've got a big God, you'll have big worship. I'm, I'm this big God. So what does this revelation of God accomplish? Well, look, look now, God says, I am, this is who I am. And then he says to Abraham, walk before me and be thou perfect. It's important that he puts it in that order. It's like when, when the Ten Commandments are given. I'm the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And then he says, thou shalt. It starts with a revelation of God's character. And he says, now live this way in light of that. This revelation of God is what motivates us in the Christian life. We don't do a bunch of stuff and then God's like, okay, now I'll let you know me. No, God reveals himself. And in response to his grace, in response to his character, we live a certain way. So he says, walk before me. Be blameless. So only after God reveals himself does he make these two demands of Abraham. God's commands always flow from God's grace. If we get those things backwards, you're going to live the Christian life frustrated. Or if you're not a believer in Jesus, you'll never become a Christian if you're like, I'm going to try to earn it and do these things. No, God reveals himself. Here's his grace. Here's his character. And then here's his command. Interesting, he says, walk before me. Notice God doesn't say, like, run before me or do acrobatics before me. Like, there's nothing more ordinary than a walk, like one step in front of another, 13 years of waiting. It'll be about 25 years from the time God calls Abraham to the time that Isaac is born. Walk, one step at a time. Most ordinary thing. You see, the Christian life is not about the spectacular. It is about faithfulness in the ordinary, what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. I like that. That's the Christian life. It's not these moments of glorious things and going down in front of a a revival meeting and these emotional experiences. No, it's faithfulness in the little stuff, day in and day out, reading your Bible, praying, teaching your kids, coming to church, sharing the gospel, the ordinary stuff, the boring stuff, the unspectacular stuff. Often we got this hankering for like, I've got to have something awesome. God's like, no, just walk before me. And then he says, be blameless. And I, I think this one flows out of the walk before me, and then the result will be you will be blameless. Now, that word is translated perfect. We get the idea of, like, sinless perfection from that. Probably not the clearest translation. The, the word here is the idea of complete or sound, the idea of integrity. Right? Be, be a man of integrity, Abraham. A, a, a life that is absent of glaring moral flaws that are, that are not dealt with. How do you get Integrity. Well, you get integrity by walking before God, right? You walk before God, you walk before his sight, you live coram deo, as R.C. Sproul would say. You live all of life before God and in his presence. You know, when you live all of life before God and in his presence, you don't get to compartmentalize stuff. You don't get to be like, well, this part of my life is not under God's authority. No, it's all under God's authority. It's all before him. The last chapter we saw, that thou God seest me. Okay, that's, that's a life of integrity, a recognition. God's everywhere. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And all of my life is lived in his presence. That's going to be a life of integrity, that what, what we might term fearing God. So verse 2 says, okay, Abraham, this is who I am. Walk before me, be perfect. So I will make my covenant between me and thee. You're like, I thought God already gave him the covenant back in chapter 15. Okay, there he cuts the covenant. He inaugurates the covenant. Here the idea is he's going to give the covenant. It's like you're going to now like embrace it and enjoy it and realize it. You're going to enjoy this covenant, this promise, this relationship between me and thee. Okay, that's, that, that's the idea, relationship. And I will multiply thee exceedingly. That God's repeated that over and over again. Your, your children will be like the dust of the earth. They're going to be like the stars of heaven. Here's Abraham, Sarah. They don't have any kids. There's just Ishmael who's hanging around, who Abraham's kind of hoping will be the son of promise. And God's saying, I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. Pretty stunning promises, right? Pretty stunning promises God's giving to Abraham. What are they rooted in? They're rooted in the fact that God is God Almighty. What is going to sustain our faith when God's like, I'm going to, my son's going to come back and remake this world. You're going to be glorified. You're going to be resurrected. You're going to be before me for all eternity. What glorious promises on what are they based? They're based on the character of God. Oh, that hymn we just sang, he will hold me fast. Because it's not up to me, like what I do, but it's up to God and his faithfulness in carrying out his promises. Love Abram's response in verse 3. Abram fell on his face. Now, it doesn't mean he was walking along and his toe caught a root and poof, there he is on the desert floor, he sprawled out. No, it means that he, he humbles himself before God and he worships God. 
He is in awe of who God is. And I believe that is in response not so much to the promises, he's heard the promises before, but in response to the presence and the character of God. That's what worship is. Worship is not a synonym in the Bible for singing, though singing expresses worship. It's not a a, a special service. We call this our worship service. Worship, more than anything, is a response to the character of God. God is like this. If God is God Almighty, then I am face down in awe of who he is. This revelation from God, it motivates our walk of integrity. It inspires our worship before God. So God starts with this to remind Abraham, I'm able to carry out the promises I've given you. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. That's the first means God uses to sustain our faith, to confirm his covenant, his promises that he's given to us. Think of all the promises God has given to us. How do we know they are true? Because they come from a God who is all-powerful, a God who is faithful, a God who doesn't change, a God who is eternal, a God who is unhasting, unchanging, that we sang about earlier. But here's a second means by which God sustains our faith and confirms his covenant. Beginning now the end of verse 3, and God talked with him saying, so we can now come into this next divine speech, and I'm going to call this this scene declaration. God is going to declare the promises. Really, in a sense, he's reiterating what he's already told Abram, uh, but he's adding a few more elements here to these promises. As for me, verse 4. So that's also one of the structural elements here. God's going to say, as for me, and then you'll say to Abraham, as for you, and then he's going to say, as for Sarai. Here's the different aspects of these promises. As for me, here's what God's going to do. Behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations I have made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come from thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, and I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God's going to say, Abraham, I'm going to declare these promises to you. I'm confirming this covenant by declaring once again. Interesting, the first divine speech really centered on the name of God, El Shaddai. Second speech centers on this new name for Abram. His name's going to go from Abram to Abraham. It'll be a, a lifelong reminder to Abraham that, hey, God's given me promises that are never going to change. Up to this point, we've known him as Abram, which means exalted father, or maybe my father is exalted, or something along those lines. But now God's going to name him Abraham, and that's basically a play on words. We get it explained here uh, in verses 5 and 6. Notice we kind of get a sandwich here. Uh, you'll be a father of many nations, here's this new name, and then the end of verse 5, for a father of many nations I have made thee. This idea of a multitude put together with the name Abraham, it's kind of a play on words to say, you're going to be an exalted father of many people. So Abram's very name now is going to be a testimony and a reminder and a confirmation of God's faithfulness. You'll be a father of many nations, and that indeed would be true through Ishmael, through Isaac, through Keturah, and later many nations would come from Abraham. God says, I will make you exceeding fruitful. Okay, that's pretty cool in verse 6, because Genesis 1.28, God told Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then Genesis 9, God told Noah, be fruitful and multiply. God commands it. Now here God's like, I'm going to give it. I love what Gordon Wenham said. He said this, the creator promises to give what he commands. That's awesome. Any command that we can obey from God is because he gave us the grace to obey it. It's not because we are strong and able. No, God gives what he commands. He says, I'm going I'm to make you exceeding fruitful. And even that original mandate, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it, Genesis 1. Okay, that didn't really work out because of Adam and Eve's sin, right? They, they, that, 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 that purpose is marred and in some degree thwarted because of sin. And then God is coming along and saying, through you, Abraham, that promise is going to be fulfilled. He mentions kings will come from you. One day there will be a king who is a descendant from Abraham who will indeed perfectly fulfill that. His name is King Jesus. 
And he's going to rule over all nations of the earth and the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever. Then we start with Genesis, dominion over all the earth. Messed up by sin, fulfilled by Jesus for all eternity. So awesome. He's going to one day rule forever. A coming king. So he mentions kings and nations will come from you and ultimately pointing to the king. So as God's declaring, giving this declaration to to confirm the covenant, to sustain Abraham's faith, he declares a new name for him. But then in verses 7 and 8, he really declares an old promise. It's sort of the promise he's given to Abraham over and over again. I'll establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I'll give to you, to your seed after you, the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You notice that word uh, everlasting shows up twice. This is sort of the new element that's being added here. This is a promise, a a covenant that ultimately stretches into eternity. Uh, A permanent kind of covenant, a permanent kind of relationship that God is establishing, not only with Abraham personally, but with his descendants. There's an eternal covenant given to the seed of Abraham. Now, who on earth are the seed of Abraham? You say, well, it's Israel. Well, yeah, in some sense. But Romans 9 says they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, physical descent alone is not what makes someone a seed of Abraham. We find out that it's those who God has chosen. It's not ethnicity, but it is election that makes someone the seed of of Abraham, according to Romans 9. In, In Galatians 3, we find out that ultimately the seed of Abraham is Christ and all who are in Christ by faith. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a believer in the Messiah, you're the seed of Abraham. And this covenant, in a a, a sense, is with us. It's not about family, but it is about faith. Now, in the Old Testament, this was largely about Israel as a nation. Primarily the people who were believers in Yahweh. There were a few people from the outside. Not all of them, of course, were believers. In the New Testament, this now expands to all people who believe in the Messiah. And he says, I'm making with you an, an everlasting covenant. For all eternity, we will be the people of God. So awesome. And then he says, verse 8, I'm going to give you this as an everlasting possession, the land of Canaan, right? This piece of real estate in the Middle East rightfully belongs to the people of Israel. But I believe this is bigger, like the promise of that covenant. It's bigger than just a physical seed, a physical land. Notice the promise that's tied up with this. I will be your God and you will be my people. We hear that somewhere else in Scripture and it is in Revelation. Jump over with me to Revelation 21. Because the Bible is ultimately one unified book, yes, written by many authors over many, many ages. But ultimately, there is a unity. There is a, a theme that runs through Scripture. And this is, by the way, one of the main themes, one of the main uh, unifiers of Scripture. This promise that I will be your God, you will be my people. But I love this. Notice how this is ultimately fulfilled. It's not ultimately fulfilled with the nation of Israel in the land of Canaan believing in God. No, it's bigger than that. It goes beyond that. Look at Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. You hear, do you hear Genesis 17 in that? It's a deliberate echo of Genesis 17. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit All things, and maybe we could render it, all these things, I will be his God and he shall be my son. With whom is this promise made? To the one who overcomes, to the one who takes to the fountain of the water of life. In other words, all people who believe in Jesus. Say, well, what about the land? Well, look back in verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. See, God in his prerogative can make a covenant and then fulfill it in a much more expansive kind of way. He can say, okay, initially this is about the land of Canaan, but his fulfillment is about the entire universe. Initially it's with Abraham, and it includes all believers. 
So this everlasting covenant is indeed everlasting. One day the old earth will be burned up. It'll be done away with, by the way, including the land of Canaan. It won't be there anymore, right? So how's that fulfilled? How can an everlasting covenant be fulfilled regarding real estate that's not going to exist anymore? Well, it's going to involve the entire universe. Here's my point. Why am I going into all of this? Is to show you that this promise in Genesis 17 is massive. And it involves you and me in some sense. And it involves God's purposes for the ages. What, What an awesome reality this is. This eternal possession, this eternal promise, this eternal relationship. For God to say, I'm your God, you'll be my people. Now, here's the question. Can that, is that true of you? Is God your God, and are you his son? All right, we're, we're not just born in that. It's not ethnicity. It's not about just family. It is about faith. Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus? How did Abraham get in? Well, he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. How do we get in? Through faith. Do you have this firm reliance on the finished work of Jesus that includes you in the people of God? This declaration of God's promise involving this eternal plan that God has for the new heavens and the new earth and this new name that God gives to Abraham. It's meant here to sustain Abraham's faith. The rest of Abraham's life, people are like, hey, Abraham, like, oh, no, 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 the name's now Abraham. Like, Learn the new name, guys, all right? So he jumps onto his Facebook page, he changes the name, like new status update. It would be a, a forever reminder for him of this promise God has made that through you, nations and kings looking down to the future. You see, our faith, like Abraham's faith, is sustained by the declaration of God's promises. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ. Faith is sustained by the promises of God. Abraham needed to hear this over and over again, right? God could have just said, hey, Abraham, look back to see what I did 13 years ago. No, but he repeats it. We need to come to church every week to hear the gospel because, as Martin Luther said, we forget the gospel, right? We need to come back and be reminded, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. We need to be reminded of the promises of God because, like, hey, you turn the news on, and you're like, oh, no, everything's going crazy in the stock market. And all. We need to be reminded, like, here's God's promises, here's his plan for the future, and it's a little bit bigger than the stock market, right? He's doing something that's bigger than just our little country that we live in or this little time in history that God has placed us in. We need to hear the promises of God over and over again to sustain our faith. So if your faith begins to wobble and waver, swim in the Bible for a little while. Get in there and and, and refresh your heart with the promises of God that to us are yes and amen in Christ. Praise him for that. But third, we now come to the heart of this chapter. And even the way this is sort of arranged, kind of you put it in the middle right here, is the sign that God is going to give to Abraham. So God's going to confirm his covenant. He's going to sustain Abraham's faith through what we're going to call confirmation. God's going to give him this sign of circumcision that will be a permanent reminder of his promises. Look at verse 9. And God said unto Abraham, so notice new divine speech, new, new point in our outline. Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. So notice the emphasis of Abraham and on future generations. That's, that's key. It's not just about you, but it's about you and future generations and the, the, this multiplication that's going to occur. This is my covenant. Okay, this is the covenant obligation that you have, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token, that is a sign of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man-child in your generations, he that is born in your house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh. Notice this for an everlasting covenant, a permanent reminder of a permanent covenant. And the uncircumcised man whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. Okay, when I read this, I'm kind of like, okay, of all the signs of your covenant you could pick, that's kind of a weird one, right? Like, there's stuff in the Bible that we read, we're like, okay, that's, that's kind of weird. Like, the rainbow that we get with the Noahic covenant, okay, that makes sense. The Mosaic covenant, the sign is Sabbath. Uh, the new covenant, the sign is the Holy Spirit, and you're like, Circumcision, okay, what's the deal with that? It was to be a reminder as they thought about God's plans to say, I'm going to multiply you. There is going to be propagation and multiplication looking to the future. 
And by having it be a surgery in the flesh, it was going to be a permanent reminder, right? Like, this is not something that is undone. Uh, This is something that's going to be a lifelong reminder to you that God's promise is secure. It's a sign, it says in verse 11, a token of the covenant, a sign of the covenant. Now, what does a sign do? A sign points to something else, right? So you're, you're driving to, to Mobile, Alabama from, you've been up in Birmingham, and you're driving down, you see a sign that says, Mobile, Alabama, 100 miles away. Hey, question, is the sign Mobile? Yes or no? No, the sign is not Mobile, it points to Mobile, right? Uh, the sign is not itself the, the covenant, it's not the essence of it, but it's pointing to the covenant, a covenant that God unilaterally has made with Abraham. This is pointing to God's faithfulness. So I think here's what the sign is all about. It's ultimately about having this reminder, this permanent reminder that God will be faithful. Right? God will be faithful in giving such a sign that would be a reminder of that, the propagation and what God was going to do in the future. Pointed to the reality of the covenant. It's primarily about God's faithfulness to his covenant to his people, a constant reminder. And again, you think about this. Who's this ultimately pointing to? It's ultimately pointing to Jesus, looking to the future, this next generation that's going to come, this next generation that's going to come, this next generation that's going to come. And ultimately, Paul, in his divine commentary in Galatians, says this is speaking of a seed of one, not of many, which is of Christ. That's why when Jesus comes... This particular right is no longer in effect. We're no longer required to follow this because it's pointing to Jesus. So it's a sign of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And by the way, guess what? Even though the sign has changed, God is still faithful. It's also a sign of covenant inclusion. We see in verses 12, 13, and 14, it's like, hey, everybody who's in your community has to go through this. Right? If they don't, they're not part of the community anymore. It's a sign of inclusion. Now, here's the deal. Other groups in the ancient Near East practice circumcision. Uh, But none of them did it as an infancy right at eight days old. This was something that was unique. God took something that the other nations, some of the other nations did, and he's like, I'm going to give this religious significance. I'm going to turn this into a religious right that marks off God's people from the surrounding nations to such a degree that later on in Israel's history, they would refer to the nations around them as the uncircumcised. It just became shorthand for people who aren't part of the covenant community. It marked off a boundary between the people of God and the people around them. This was to be a reminder to every Hebrew male as he led his home, as he led in his community, that he belonged to God. Paul in in Galatians 5, he says, I just want to remind you guys that everyone who is circumcised is obligated to keep the whole law. It was a point to say, you belong completely to Yahweh. You represent him in this world. You are submitted to him and you're confident in his promises. But I don't want to lose sight of something. This is a sign, I think, ultimately of covenant transformation. Moses, later on in Deuteronomy, would say to the people of Israel, don't don't just circumcise the flesh, circumcise the heart. This is saying that you need a heart change in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. Here's the thing that's pretty sweet. We get this talk of the new covenant. In fact, go over there with me to Jeremiah 31. So Moses hints at this in, in the end of the Decalogue. Jeremiah just lays it out there. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And by the way, God can make a covenant with them, but fulfill it in a bunch more people. He's gonna, he can expand covenant fulfillment. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they break, okay, the Mosaic covenant. They didn't keep, keep the law. Although as a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be, verse 33, Jeremiah 31. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And then here's this again. And will be their God and they will be my people. So there's that sort of continuity in the plan of God. But here's the change. Instead of this being an external thing, this internal transformation of the heart. Ezekiel, speaking of the same reality in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, says this, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. This is pointing to the promise of the new covenant. Jesus put it this way, ye must be born again. 
You must be born again. That's, that's what the new covenant is all about. It's not just an external sign, but internal transformation. This is what this is pointing to. And those who don't have that heart change are not among the people of God. God is not their God. They're not in saving relationship with him. In the New Covenant, Paul makes it very clear in Romans 2, 28 to 29. He says, a Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but one who is one in the heart. Circumcision is not in the flesh, but in the heart. Galatians 6 and verse 15 says, circumcision availeth nothing, neither uncircumcision, but a new creation. He says, you don't need a little surgery. You need to be completely remade. By the way, is anyone here capable of completely giving themselves a new heart and a new nature? Anyone who's like, yeah, I can produce the new birth in myself. No, that is something that we are incapable of doing. It is a gift of God brought to us through the gospel of Jesus. You must be born again. You must be made new. And you say, by the way, how do I know that I've been born again? He gives us the Holy Spirit. That's the sign of the new covenant. How do I know that I'm in the new covenant? The spirit, the arabon, the down payment, the wedding ring, Ephesians 1 says. How do I know I have the Holy Spirit? Well, he changes my life. He produces the new spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering in my life as a sign that God has radically transformed me. He's put his new nature into me. He's giving me the new heart. He's taken the old heart out and put a new heart in. He's changed the control center of my life and put me on a new direction, a new path, and a new destiny. That's what this is pointing to. My question to you is, have you been born again? Has there been a radical transformation in your heart and your affections whereby you, you hate the sin you used to love and you love the righteousness you used to hate. That's what this is pointing to. That's the confirmation. And you read First John and you find out what's the confirmation that we, we've been made new, that we've, we, we have eternal life. What's this new obedience, this new love, it's these new relationships that we have with God's people. So this confirms the covenant for Abraham, this permanent reminder in his flesh that for him and for all his descendants that God's going to be faithful. And there's someone who's coming, a future generation is coming where this is all going to be fulfilled. And I'm here to tell you that it has been in Jesus Christ. I want to come to a fourth means by which God confirms his promise, by which he sustains our faith. Back to Genesis 17. I know we just ran through the entire Bible. Back to Genesis 17, verse 15. And God said unto Abraham, now notice how the text changes, now we're using the new name. God said unto Abraham, as for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. So he changes the way her name is, and now the meaning of the name is essentially the same, princess. But he's going to say it differently. And then he goes on to say this, and I will bless her and give thee a son also by her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of people, shall be from her. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old, and shall Sarah, that is ninety years old, bear? So God comes along with this next divine speech. And what we're going to call this, this movement is clarification. Now God's going to really clarify how he's going to fulfill this this promise. Up to this point, God has not told Abraham specifically how he's going to bring about a son. Right, so Abraham in the previous chapter is like, well, maybe this thing with Hagar is God's way of doing this. And God's like, no, 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 no. It's going to be through Sarah. And I'm going to change her name as a reminder, as a, as a permanent reminder to you that I'm a faithful God. This is kind of surprising because up to this point, God's dealings have been primarily with Abraham. But now he's like, I'm going to talk, talk, talk about Sarah directly. And this woman whose name means princess from her kings will come. And that's pretty awesome. By the way, the same promise that God gave to Abraham. They are heirs together of the grace of life. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 7 brings that into the New Testament. Think about that when husbands and wives, when you talk to each other, we're heirs together of the grace of life. That we, we get the same salvation, the same eternal life, the same forgiveness. Uh, there's not special levels that like men are here and women are here spiritually. No equal ground at the foot of the cross. Gives this promise to, to Sarah and through her, the, the, the child's going to come. Now, Abraham's reaction, um, it, it, you know, it, it kind of makes sense. Because you're like, well, Abraham should have had more faith. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to someone who's 100 years old and his wife who's 90? Uh, I think this is a shock. I, I don't know that this is Abraham being like, I don't believe God. No, Abraham was a man of faith. But this is an absolute shock at the grandeur and the magnitude of the promises of God. It literally knocks him on his face. He's so, so blown away by this. And then he laughs, 
That'll be key. And he says in his heart, and God knows what he says in his heart. He asks, how can this happen? Now, verse 18, Abraham is a suggestion for God. Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before thee, saying, God, I don't know how we're going to have a kid. Couldn't Ishmael do? Couldn't Ishmael be the one through whom you fulfill this promise? And God kindly meets Abraham in his doubt. God doesn't come along and smash him with the sledgehammer of judgment, right? No, God meets him right there in his shock. Verse 19, and God said, so now we get another movement in these divine speeches, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed. And thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with the seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes, that's sort of twelve rulers, shall he beget. And I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac which Sarah shall bear unto thee this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. God's clarifying how he's going to fulfill the promise. He, look at the specifics that he gives. He says, okay, it's, uh, in verse 19, he's going to come through Sarah, just so you get it straight, Abraham. It's going to be through Sarah that this child is going to be born. He says, you're going to call his name Isaac. Look at the level of specificity. His name's going to be Isaac. The name means laughter, so it's a, it's a play on the, the, the events surrounding this. By the way, Sarah in Genesis 18, she's going to laugh when she finds out about it, and then they're both going to laugh with joy when he's born. So there's some, some meaning going on here. Yitzhak, Isaac will be his name. Laughter, because in one sense you laughed in shock. Sarah laughed in disbelief, but you're going to laugh together in delight when I carry this out. But here's the key in verse, notice verse 19 and verse 21 have this, the same phrase, I'll establish my covenant with him. Verse 21, I will, my covenant will I establish with Isaac. The point being is, hey, Ishmael, yes, I will bless Ishmael. He'll have lots of kids. I'll raise up a great nation. Just as a benefit of him being your descendant, Abraham. But Isaac is the one through whom the covenant will pass. So God says it twice, the covenant, the, 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 the saving relationship the saving purpose will be fulfilled through Isaac and not Ishmael. Now, verse 20 is a neat verse, too. Ishmael's name means God hears. And so God says, as for God hears, I have heard thee. Kind of a play on the name. I love how that Hebrew does that. God's like, hey, the one whose name means God hears, I've heard you regarding him. I've blessed him. Okay? Ishmael is going to be blessed, but he's not going to be in the covenant. Uh, this is a good illustration of God's common grace. God causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. People who aren't believers in Jesus still experience so much of the kindness of God. Here's Ishmael. He says, but Isaac will be the one with whom the covenant will be. Isn't this incredible, the specificity, the clarity of the promises of God? This is meant to sustain Abraham's faith. And guess what? God has given us specific promises. We read some of them in Revelation 21. He's going to make the world new. One day we're going to be resurrected. I mean, that's incredible, right? The, this, the body of this humiliation will be transformed like the body of his glory in Philippians 3. Incredible promises. One day we're told we're going, to, we're going to enter glory in this body of sin we're not going to have anymore. Man, that's going to be wonderful. That's going to be awesome. But do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? There's real implications if we believe it. Go over with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Here, Peter is admonishing the people of God regarding God's plans for the future. And he's telling them that God's promises are secure. And he's saying, here's some of the implications of what our lives should be like if we really believe the promises of God. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. He's been talking about false teachers. And he's been talking about the guarantee of judgment that's going to come upon them. Verse 8, 2 Peter 3. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and one, a thousand years is one day. In other words, being God, God's not experiencing time like we experience time. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. In other words, God's not failing in some way to keep his promises. But as long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. In other words, all of us, God's people, he's going to save. We're not going to perish. He's not going to lose us. But the day of the Lord, 
The day of judgment will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. You're like, man, that's pretty hardcore stuff. Yet who doesn't want justice? Listen, everybody wants justice. People march in the street saying, we want justice. When some horrible crime happens, we want justice. When somebody wrongs us, we want justice. We all want justice for sin as long as it's not our sin. Right? That's just kind of the way we're... I want everyone else to get justice, but not, not me. I, I, I've got some exceptions here. Uh, this, this promise of justice, we, we don't see much justice in our world, do we? We see criminals who get off in technicalities, innocent people who get condemned. We hear about persecution happening in other countries. We're like, man, look at China and the way that they are mistreating, like in horrible ways, committing genocide against the Muslim population there. We hear about how Hindu persecution in India is occurring. We, we, We see all these things, and guess what? Those people get away with their crimes. No one ever holds them accountable. And there's something inside of us that's like, there has to be a cosmic scale out there somewhere. Just uh, the image of God in us demands it. And this verse is saying, hey, it's going to happen. God is going to be just. That's good news that God's going to be just, that sin will be dealt with. Well, how should we live in light of that? Look at, look at verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, like this world's going to pass away, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? You know what the reality of God's promises do for us? motivates holiness. Holiness is a dumb idea if God's promises aren't true, right? Like, if there's no eternity, like, sin's kind of fun, right? The only reason why we would pursue holiness is because there is something so much better coming that we are preparing ourselves for, that we are waiting for. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's the promise that we see God that motivates us to say, I'm going to pursue a pure heart in a world that is a big sewer. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Being meek's no fun. Blessed are the persecuted. Right? Anybody like, ah, persecution, that sounds fun. No. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is the, the, the certainty of God's promises in the future that makes the Christian life make any sense at all. So it motivates our godliness. It says, we're looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, where in the heavens... Uh, being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth. Wherein dwelleth righteousness? How good is that? God's going to judge. There's going to be justice. But there's also going to be righteousness. Humanity has been longing since history began for righteousness. Every, every sort of political revolution that comes along, Andy was talking about this communist government coming in in Peru. What are people looking for? They're looking for utopia. They're looking for... Like perfection here and now, and it never happens. But one day it is going to come, right? Every political leader is going to let you down. Every political party is going to be a failure. Every revolution is going to have its shortcomings. But one day King Jesus will reign. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 14, wherein, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. This motivates our holiness, the specificity of these promises, the clarification of these promises. But I want to go back to Genesis 17 and finish out the chapter. Let me just summarize for you, verses 23 to 27. Here's what happens. Abraham goes out and obeys God. God's like, be circumcised, you and all the men in your house. And Abraham goes out and does it. He completely obeys God. Everybody in the family, everybody in the house, all the servants, he, Ishmael, all obey God. This is complete obedience and you know, let's be honest, this is costly obedience. No anesthesia back then. This is painful. This is costly. And yet he obeys God. What is the sign that you really believe in God? Is you obey him. If you love me, keep my commandments. Faith without works is dead. You say, I believe in God. I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a Christian. Okay, what does your life look like? Is it marked by complete and costly obedience? Abraham's kind of like Noah. God gives Noah commands and says, Noah went out and did everything just as God told him. Moses. Moses goes out and builds the tabernacle just as God commanded him. Here's here's Abraham doing what God told him to do. Look at the end of verse 23. Did the selfsame day as God had said unto him, just like God commanded him. Under the new covenant, the rite of circumcision is no longer in force, but God does still call his people to radical obedience. Take up the cross. Follow me. It's easy to obey God when it's really convenient. Right? We're, we're pretty awesome Christians when it's like, yeah, it's convenient. It's not hard to go to church. And it, there, there's, 
freedom, and, and you actually kind of gain plaudits in the community. Uh, you know, living here in Mobile, Alabama, if you're going to you know, run for office, you're going to put Christian conservative on your sign because, yeah, yeah, this is kind of a, the Bible belt, right? It's convenient to be a Christian. But what happens when it's no longer convenient? What happens when you are facing hostility? What happens when the culture changes, as it indeed is, is doing? Will you still be faithful when it costs you? The measure of your faith and your obedience is not what you do when it is convenient, but what you do when it is inconvenient. I bet you, like Abraham, if I were Abraham, I'd be like, all right, God, I, this doesn't make any sense, but I'm going to do it. There's not a whole lot of, like, why this? See, understanding often comes after obedience. God doesn't say, you understand everything and then you obey, but often he says, understand and then you will obey. Commit to doing my will and then you'll understand. Submit to me and trust me. Everything else falls into place. So the long wait, 13 years, comes to an end. God speaks to Abraham, gives him these divine speeches. Abraham obeys. A year later, son is born, Isaac. But the long wait continued. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has a son named Judah. And and ultimately through Judah comes a guy named David. And then David has a great, great, great grandson whose name is Jesus. And one day Jesus is born, and the long wait was finally fulfilled with that coming deliverer. After the long wait of thousands of years, he finally came. He lived a perfect life. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He conquered sin and death. He obeyed perfectly. He ascended to heaven, and one day he is coming back. And that is the thing for which we wait. What I'm saying to you this morning is this. Things will not always be as they are now. We wait in hope for the coming Glory, the resurrection, the redemption of the body. One day, the long wait will be over. So in the meantime, will you let your faith be sustained? By the revelation of God's character, this is who he is. El Shaddai, Yahweh, Elohim, the God who doesn't change. Will you let your faith be sustained by the declaration of his promises? Just ransack the Bible for the promises of God and hold tenaciously to them like a drowning man holding on to a, a life raft. Sustained through confirmation, looking into your life and seeing the, the, the Holy Spirit's presence in your life as that confirmation, as the sign of the new covenant. Your faith sustained through the clarification of here's the promises laid out specifically how God's going to do this. And then your faith sustained through the implementation of uh, obedience, saying the covenant's true and I believe it is so true, I'm going to act on it. I'm going to live as if this is actually true. This world is looking for Christians who are going to live as if Christianity is actually true. Not that it's a little add-on to our lives, not as if it's a convenient thing, but it's actually true. It's reality. One day the long wait will be over. Would you bow with me as we, as we pray? Father.